Hello everyone, I'm Kathleen Pelly. Welcome to the special omnibus edition of Journey with Story, where you can listen to all of this month's episodes one after the other. And just so you know, there will be no special intro for the individual stories, no added details and no shout-outs. If you want to hear all of those, then you'll need to listen to the individual episodes and not this version. Got it? Oh, mums, dads, grown-ups, you can download some free colouring sheets at our website, www.journeywithstory.com. Let's take an omnibus journey with story. Now, let's take a journey with Bad Sir Brian Botany by A. A. Milne. Sir Brian had a battle axe with great big knobs on. He went among the villagers and blit them on the head. On Wednesday and on Saturday, especially on the latter day, he called on all the cottages, and this is what he said. I am Sir Brian. I am Sir Brian. I am Sir Brian, as bold as a lion. Take that, and that, and that. Sir Brian had a pair of boots with great big spurs on. A fighting pair of which he was particularly fond. On Tuesday and on Friday, just to make the street look tidy, he'd collect the passing villagers and kick them in the pond. I am Sir Brian. I am Sir Brian. I am Sir Brian, as bold as a lion. Is anyone else for a wash? Sir Brian woke one morning and he couldn't find his battle axe. He walked into the village in his second pair of boots. He had gone a hundred paces when the street was full of faces and the villagers were round him with ironical salutes. You are Sir Brian? My, my. You are Sir Brian, dear, dear. You are Sir Brian, as bold as a lion. Delighted to meet you here. Sir Brian went a journey and he found a lot of duck weed. They pulled him out and dried him and they blipped him on the head. They took him by the breeches and they hurled him into ditches. They pushed him under waterfalls and this is what they said. You are Sir Brian? Don't laugh. You are Sir Brian? Don't cry. You are Sir Brian as bold as a lion? Sir Brian, the lion. Goodbye. Sir Brian struggled home again and chopped up his battle axe. Sir Brian took his fighting boots and threw them in the fire. He is quite a different person now he hasn't got his spurs on. And he goes about the village as B. Botany Esquire. I am Sir Brian. Oh, no. I am Sir Brian. Who is he? I haven't any title. I'm Botany. Plain Mr. Botany B. Let's take a journey with 
the magic tree. A long time ago in Africa, there was a terrible drought. The rains did not fall. The plants, the grass, and the trees all stopped growing. The animals were hungry. They walked across the great flat plains in search of food. For many days and for many miles, they walked and walked and walked until finally they came upon a most magnificent tree. The tallest tree they had ever seen with branches that bowed and buckled with the weight of ripe, juicy fruits, the likes of which they had never seen before. But try as they might, none of the animals could reach the fruit, for the branches were too high and the trunk of the tree was too smooth for them to climb. The animals cried and wailed, What are we to do? Listen, roared Lion, king of the jungle. I remember my grandfather told me a story about this magic tree whose fruit could only be reached by one who knew the name of the tree. Well, tell us, who can tell us the name of the tree, cried the animals. We must go to the old chief who lives on the sacred mountain, said the lion. He will tell us its name. I will go, said Hare. I am the fastest runner. So Hare set off across the great flat plains, running like the wind, until he came to the foot of the sacred mountain. Then up he bolted and landed with a thud before the old chief who was sitting quietly in prayer. How can I help you? he asked kindly. Please, panted Hare, we are all so hungry and we have found the magic tree with wonderful fruit, but we cannot eat the fruit until we know the name of the tree. Do not worry, said the chief. I can tell you its name. The name of the tree is Uwungalema. Thank you, cried Hare, as he set off back down the mountain and sped back to where the animals were waiting for him. Along the way, he began to imagine how happy all the animals would be when he told them the name of the tree and how they would thank him and be grateful to him forever. And so busy was he thinking these thoughts that he did not notice the enormous anthill in his path until... Crash! He ran right into it and landed in a tumbled heap before the animals. What is the name of the tree? The animals shouted at him. Hare shook his head over and over and over, but... The name of the tree was gone. I can't remember, he wailed. The animals groaned. Now we need to send someone else. Someone who will not forget. That would be me, trumpeted Elephant. I never forget. The animals agreed, and so Elephant started out across the great flat plains toward the sacred mountain. When Elephant reached the top of the mountain, the chief was sitting there in his usual place. Please, can you tell me the name of the magic tree? The animals are so hungry. The chief looked puzzled. But I already told Hare the name of the tree. How could he forget so soon? But very well, I suppose I can tell you again. The name of the tree is... Uwungalema. But do not forget it, for I will not tell anyone else. I will not forget, said Elephant haughtily. We elephants never forget. And she headed back down the mountain toward the magic tree where all the animals were waiting for her. Me forget, she grumbled. 
still bristling at the old chief's words. How could I ever forget anything? Why, I can remember all the names of the stars, all the names of my great uncles and great aunts, all the names of the flowers of Africa, and I even remember all the names of the rivers. So busy was Elephant remembering that she did not notice the huge anthill in her path, the very one that Hare had crashed into until... Thud! She tripped and skidded right into the middle of all the animals who shouted, Tell us the name of the tree! Elephant was dizzy and discombobulated. I can't remember that now, she snapped. I am tired and cross and completely out of sorts. Oh, because of that silly tree and that rude chief. The animals moaned and looked at one another in despair. Oh, what is to become of us now? Lion stepped forward. I am your king, he said. I shall go and I will bring you back the name of the tree. So Lion set across the great flat plain and made his way to the top of the mountain where the old chief was standing, gazing up at the sky. What do you want now? said the chief. I have told Hare the name of the tree. I have told Elephant the name of the tree. Is that not enough? Can none of you animals remember? Forgive us, chief, said Lion. We are all so hungry and tired it is hard for us to remember. But please, just one more time I ask you, tell us the name of the tree. Oh, very well, said the chief crossly. But I warn you, this is the last time. The name of the tree is Uwungalema. Line thanked the chief and headed as fast as he could down the mountain and across the great flat plains toward the magic tree where the animals were waiting for him. I should have gone in the first place, he thought as he walked. After all, I am the king of all the animals and I am the smartest and the wisest and the cleverest. So busy was Line listing all his many wonderful qualities that... He did not notice the enormous anthill in his path. The same anthill that had tripped up hare and elephant until... Line went head over heels and landed in a tangle of tail and mane right in front of all the animals. What's the name of the tree? they yelled. Line was too upset to speak. He just shook his head and closed his eyes in shame. The animals were too tired, too sad, and too hungry to speak. At last, after a very long time, young tortoise spoke. I will go and find out the name of the tree. You, said the animals, but you are just a tortoise. You are too slow, too stupid, too young. But already tortoise was on his way. Little by little, he plodded across the great flat plains, right up to the foot of the sacred mountain. And little by little, he trudged up the side of the mountain until he came face to face with the old chief who was glaring at him. If you have come to ask me for the name of the tree, go away, roared the chief. I already told Hare. I already told Elephant. I already told Lion. So I will not tell anyone else that the name of the tree is Owungalema. Tortoise turned and set off down the mountain and over the great flat plains toward the magic tree where all the animals were waiting. As he walked, he said, The name of the tree is Owungalema. Owungalema. Over and over and over again he chanted the name Uwungalema, Uwungalema, for that is what his mother and her mother before her had taught him. Whenever you want to remember something, you must repeat it over and over again. Tortoise never stopped saying it for mile after mile after mile. Even when he grew tired or hungrier 
or thirsty, and even when he fell right into the huge anthill, he just clambered out and he kept on walking and he kept on chanting, Uwungalema, the name of the tree is Uwungalema. None of the animals noticed Tortoise as he walked right up to the foot of the tree and he said in a very loud voice, The name of the tree is Uwungalema. At once, the branches of the tree bent low, low to the ground, but all the animals could reach its wonderful, ripe, juicy fruit. They ate and ate and ate until they were full. Then they hoisted tortoise high in the air and they cheered and they marched around the tree, chanting, Oh, Wongalema! Oh, Wongalema! The name of the tree is Owungalema. And they never forgot the name of the magic tree again. Will you? Let's take a journey with The Happy Prince by Oscar Wilde. High above the city on a tall column stood the statue of the Happy Prince. He was gilded all over with thin leaves of fine gold. For his eyes, he had two bright sapphires and a large a red ruby glowed on his sword hilt. He was very much admired indeed. He is as beautiful as a weathercock, remarked one of the town councillors who wished to gain a reputation for having artistic tastes. Only not quite so useful, he added, fearing lest people should think him unpractical which he really was not. Why can't you be like the happy prince? asked a sensible mother of her little boy who was crying for the moon. The happy prince never dreams of crying for anything. I am glad there is someone in the world who is quite happy, muttered a disappointed man as he gazed at the wonderful statue. He looks just like an angel, said the charity children as they came out of the cathedral in their bright scarlet cloaks and their clean white pinafers. How do you know, said the mathematical master, who have never seen one. Ah, but we have in our dreams, answered the children. And the mathematical master frowned and looked very severe, for he did not approve of children dreaming. One night there flew over the city a little swallow. His friends had gone away to Egypt six weeks before, but he had stayed behind, for he was in love with the most beautiful Orit. He had met her early in the spring, as he was flying down the river after a big yellow moth and had been so attracted by her slender waist that he had stopped to talk to her. Shall I love you? said the swallow, who liked to come to the point at once. And the reed made him a low bow. So he flew round and round her, touching the water with his wings and making silver ripples. This was his courtship, 
and it lasted all through the summer. It is a ridiculous attachment, twittered the other swallows. She has no money and far too many relations. And indeed, the river was quite full of reeds. Then, when the autumn came, they all flew away. After they had gone, he felt lonely and began to tire of his lady love. She has no conversation, he said, and I am afraid that she is a coquette, for she is always flirting with the wind. And certainly, whenever the wind blew, the reed made the most graceful curtsies. I admit that she is domestic, he continued, but I love travelling, and my wife, consequently, should love travelling also. Will you come away with me? he said finally to her. But the reed shook her head. She was so attached to her home. You have been trifling with me, he cried. I am off to the pyramids. Goodbye. And he flew away. All day long he flew, and at night time he arrived at the city. Where shall I put up? he said. I hope the town has made preparations. Then he saw the statue on the tall column. I will put up there, he cried. It is a fine position with plenty of fresh air. So he alighted just between the feet of the happy prince. I have a golden bedroom, he said softly to himself as he looked round and he prepared to go to sleep. But just as he was putting his head under his wing, a large drop of water fell on him. What a curious thing, he cried. There is not a single cloud in the sky. The stars are quite clear and bright. And yet it is raining. The climate in the north of Europe is really dreadful. The reed used to like the rain, but that was merely her selfishness. Then another drop fell. What is the use of a statue if it cannot keep the rain off, he said. I must look for a good chimney pot. And he determined to fly away. But before he had opened his wings, a third drop fell. And he looked up and saw. Ah, what did he see? The eyes of the happy prince were filled with tears, and tears were running down his golden cheeks. His face was so beautiful in the moonlight that the little swallow was filled with pity. Who are you? he said. I am the happy prince. Why are you weeping then? asked the swallow. You have quite drenched me. When I was alive and had a human heart, answered the statue, I did not know what tears were, for I lived in the palace of Saint Souci, where sorrow is not allowed to enter. In the daytime I played with my companions in the garden, and in the evening I led the dance in the great hall. Around the garden ran a very lofty wall, but I never cared to ask what lay beyond it. Everything about me was so beautiful. My courtiers called me the Happy Prince, and happy indeed I was if pleasure be happiness. So I lived and so I died, and now that I am dead, they have set me up here so high that I can see all the ugliness and all the misery of my city. And though my heart is made of lead, yet I cannot choose but weep. Well, what? Is he not solid gold? said the swallow to himself. He was too polite to make any personal remarks out loud. Far away, continued the statue in a low musical voice. Far away, in a little street, there is a poor house. One of the windows is open 
and through it I can see a woman seated at a table. Her face is thin and worn, and she has coarse red hands, all pricked by the needle, for she is a seamstress. She is embroidering passion flowers on a satin gown for the loveliest of the Queen's maids of honour to wear at the next court ball. In a bed in the corner of the room, her little boy is lying ill. He has a fever and is asking for oranges. His mother has nothing to give him but river water. So he is crying. Swallow, swallow, little swallow, will you not bring her the ruby out of my sword hilt? My feet are fastened to this pedestal and I cannot move. I am waited for in Egypt, said the swallow. My friends are flying up and down the Nile and talking to the large lotus flowers. Soon they will go to sleep in the tomb of the great king. The king is there himself in his painted coffin. He is wrapped in yellow linen and embalmed with spices. Round his neck is a chain of pale green jade and his hands are like withered leaves. Swallow, swallow, little swallow, said the prince. Will you not stay with me for one night? and be my messenger. The boy is so thirsty, and the mother so sad. I don't think I like boys, answered the swallow. Last summer, when I was staying on the river, there were two rude boys, the miller's sons, who were always throwing stones at me. They never hit me, of course. We swallows fly far too well for that. And besides... I come of a family famous for its agility. But still it was a mark of disrespect. But the happy prince looked so sad that the little swallow was sorry. It is very cold here, he said, but I will stay with you for one night and be your messenger. Thank you, little swallow, said the prince. So the swallow picked out the great ruby from the prince's sword and flew away with it in his beak over the roofs of the town. He passed by the cathedral tower where the white marble angels were sculptured. He passed by the palace and heard the sound of dancing. A beautiful girl came out on the balcony with her lover. How wonderful the stars are! he said to her, and how wonderful is the power of love. Oh, I hope my dress will be ready in time for the state ball, she answered. I have ordered passion flowers to be embroidered on it, but the seamstresses are so lazy. He passed over the river and saw the lanterns hanging to the masts of the ships. He passed over the ghetto and saw the old Jews bargaining with each other and weighing out money in copper scales. At last he came to the poor house and looked in. The boy was tossing feverishly on his bed and the mother had fallen asleep. She was so tired. In he hopped and laid the great ruby on the table beside the woman's thimble. Then he flew gently round the bed, fanning the boy's forehead with his wings. Ah, how cool I feel, said the boy. I must be getting better. And he sank into a delicious slumber. Then the swallow flew back to the happy prince and told him what he had done. It is curious, he remarked, but I feel quite warm now, although it is so cold. That is because you have done a good action, said the prince. And the little swallow began to think and then he fell asleep. Thinking always made him sleepy. When day broke, he flew down to the river and had a bath. What a remarkable phenomenon, said the professor of ornithology as he was passing over the bridge. A swallow in winter. And he wrote a long letter about it to the local newspaper. 
everyone quoted it. It was full of so many words that they could not understand. Tonight I go to Egypt, said the swallow, and he was in high spirits at the prospect. He visited all the public monuments and sat a long time on top of the church steeple. Wherever he went, the sparrows chirruped and said to each other, oh, What a distinguished stranger! So he enjoyed himself very much. When the moon rose, he flew back to the happy prince. Have you any commissions for Egypt? he cried. I am just starting. Swallow, swallow, little swallow, said the prince. Will you not stay with me one night longer? I am waited for in Egypt, answered the swallow. Tomorrow, my friends, will fly up to the second cataract. The river horse couches there among the bulrushes, and on a great granite throne sits the god Memnon. All night long he watches the stars. And when the morning star shines, he utters one cry of joy, and then he is silent. At noon, the yellow lines come down to the water's edge to drink. They have eyes like green bells, and their roar is louder than the roar of the cataract. Swallow, swallow, little swallow, said the prince. Far away across the city, I see a young man in a garret. He is leaning over a desk covered with papers, and in a tumbler by his side, there is a bunch of withered violets. His hair is brown and crisp and his lips are red as a pomegranate, and he has large and dreamy eyes. He is trying to finish a play for the director of the theatre, but he is too cold to write any more. There is no fire in the grate, and hunger has made him faint. I will wait with you one night longer, said the swallow, who really had a good heart. Shall I take him another ruby? Alas, I have no ruby now, said the prince. My eyes are all that I have left. They are made of rare sapphires, which were brought out of India a thousand years ago. Pluck out one of them and take it to him. He will sell it to the jeweller and buy food and firewood and finish his play. Dear prince, said the swallow, I not do that. And he began to weep. Swallow, swallow, little swallow, said the prince. Do as I command you. So the swallow plucked out the prince's eye and flew away to the student's garret. It was easy enough to get in, as there was a hole in the roof. Through this he darted and came into the room. The young man had his head buried in his hands, so he did not hear the flutter of the bird's wings, and when he looked up, he found the beautiful sapphire lying on the withered violets. I am beginning to be appreciated, he cried. This is from some great admirer. Now I can finish my play. And he looked quite happy. The next day, the swallow flew down to the harbour. He sat on the mast of a large vessel and watched the sailors hauling big chests out of the hold with ropes. Heave ahoy! They shouted as each chest came up. I am going to Egypt, cried the swallow. But nobody minded, and when the moon rose, he flew back to the happy prince. I am come to bid you goodbye. He cried. Swallow, swallow, little swallow, said the prince. Will you not stay with me one night longer? It is winter, answered the swallow, and the chill snow will soon be here. In Egypt the sun is warm on the green palm trees, and the crocodiles lie in the mud and look lazily about them. My companions are building a nest in the temple of Baalbek and the pink and white doves are watching them and cooing to each other. Dear prince, I must leave you, but I will never forget you, 
and next spring I will bring you back two beautiful jewels in place of those you have given away. The ruby shall be redder than a red rose, and the sapphire shall be as blue as the great sea. In the square below, said the happy prince, there stands a little match girl. She has let her matches fall in the gutter, and they are all spoiled. Her father will beat her if she does not bring home some money, and she is crying. She has no shoes or stockings, and her little head is bare. Pluck out my other eye and give it to her, and her father will not beat her. I will stay with you one night longer, said the swallow, but I cannot pluck out your eye. You would be quite blind then. Swallow, swallow, little swallow, said the prince, do as I command you. So he plucked out the prince's other eye and darted down with it. He swooped past the match girl and slipped the jewel into the palm of her hand. Ah, what a lovely bit of glass, cried the little girl, and she ran home laughing. Then the swallow came back to the prince. You are blind now, he said, so I will stay with you always. No, little swallow, said the poor prince, you must go away to Egypt. I will stay with you always, said the swallow and he slept at the prince's feet. All the next day he sat on the prince's shoulder and told him stories of what he had seen in strange lands. He told him of the red ibises, who stand in long rows on the banks of the Nile and catch goldfish in their beaks, of the sphinx, who is as old as the world itself and lives in the desert and knows everything. Of the merchants who walk slowly by the side of their camels and carry amber beads in their hands. Of the king of the mountains of the moon who is as black as ebony and worships a large crystal. Of the great green snake that sleeps in a palm tree and has twenty priests to feed it with honey cakes and of the pygmies who sail over a big lake on large flat leaves and are always at war with the butterflies. Dear little swallow, said the prince, you tell me of marvellous things, but more marvellous than anything is the suffering of men and of women. There is no mystery so great as misery. Fly over my city, little swallow, and tell me what you see there. So the swallow flew over the great city and saw the rich making merry in their beautiful houses while the beggars were sitting at the gates. He flew into dark lanes and saw the white faces of starving children looking out listlessly at the black streets. Under the archway of a bridge, two little boys were lying in one another's arms to try and keep themselves warm. How hungry we are, they said. You must not lie here, shouted the watchman, and they wandered out into the rain. Then he flew back and told the prince what he had seen. I am covered with fine gold, said the prince. You must take it off leaf by leaf and give it to my poor. The living always think that gold can make them happy. Leaf after leaf of the fine gold the swallow picked off, till the happy prince looked quite dull and grey. Leaf after leaf of the fine gold he brought to the poor, and the children's faces grew rosier, and they laughed and played games in the street. We have bread now, they cried. Then the snow came, and after the snow came the frost. The streets looked as if they were made of silver. They were so bright and glistening. Long icicles like crystal daggers hung down from the eaves of the houses. Everybody went about in furs, and the little boys 
wore scarlet caps and skated on the ice. The poor little swallow grew colder and colder, but he would not leave the prince. He loved him too well. He picked up crumbs outside the baker's door when the baker was not looking and tried to keep himself warm by flapping his wings. But at last he knew that he was going to die. He had just strength to fly up to the prince's shoulder once more. Goodbye, dear prince, he murmured. Will you let me kiss your hand? I am glad that you are going to Egypt at last, little swallow, said the prince. You have stayed too long here, but you must kiss me on the lips, for I love you. It is not to Egypt that I am going, said the swallow. I am going to the house of death. Death is the brother of sleep, is he not? And he kissed the happy prince on the lips and fell down dead at his feet. At that moment, a curious crack sounded inside the statue as if something had broken. The fact is that the leaden heart had snapped right in two. It certainly was a dreadfully hard frost. Early the next morning, the mayor was walking in the square below in company with the town councillors. As they passed the column, he looked up at the statue. Dear me, how shabby the happy prince looks, he said. How shabby indeed, cried the town councillors, who always agreed with the mayor, and they went up to look at it. The ruby has fallen out of his sword. His eyes are gone, and he is golden no longer said the mayor, in fact. He is little better than a beggar. Little better than a beggar, said the town councillors. And here is actually a dead bird at his feet, continued the mayor. We must really issue a proclamation that birds are not to be allowed to die here. And the town clerk made a note of the suggestion. So they pulled down the statue of the happy prince. As he is no longer beautiful, he is no longer useful, said the art professor at the university. Then they melted the statue in a furnace, and the mayor held a meeting of the corporation to decide what was to be done with the metal. We must have another statue, of course, he said, and it shall be a statue of myself. Off myself, said each of the town councillors, and they quarrelled. When I last heard of them, they were quarrelling still. What a strange thing, said the overseer of the workmen at the foundry. This broken lead heart will not melt in the furnace. We must throw it away. So they threw it on a dust heap, where the dead swallow was also lying. Bring me the two most precious things in the city, said God to one of his angels. And the angel brought him the leaden heart and the dead bird. You have rightly chosen, said God, for in my garden of paradise, this little bird shall sing forevermore. And in my city of gold, the happy prince shall praise me. Let's take a journey then with Maggie, the farmer's daughter. There once lived a poor farmer's daughter called Maggie. Day after day, Maggie worked in the fields with her father, learning how to plough and plant and reap. 
She loved the tug of the wind in her hair, the warmth of the sun on her back, and the smell of damp earth clinging to her skin. But most of all, she loved to listen to the stories her father told her as they worked side by side on the land. Tell me another story, father, she begged. He'd lean on his spade and in a gentle, lilting voice begin telling her yet another story, his words melting into her skin like soft spring rain. As he spoke, Maggie saw pictures in her mind of heather-dappled mountains, secret caves and wishing wells. She saw a holy tree and pheasants arising in the dawn, their feathers the colours of fire and forests and moonlight. When he finished, Maggie always felt a tingling in her head and a stirring in her heart. Stop filling the child's head with your foolish stories, chided the farmer's wife. Maggie should be at home with her sisters, learning woman's work. What's to become of a girl who doesn't know how to cook or sew or keep a house? What man will ever take her as his wife? Leave the girl alone, said the farmer. Our Maggie's a child of the earth and the sky. She knows how to hope and dream and love. She knows how to make her heart sing and her mind wonder. That should be enough for the man our daughter weds. As she grew older, Maggie began making up her own stories and told them to anyone who'd listen. But her mother and sisters only laughed at her. Get away with you, Maggie, scolded her mother. What use are stories when there's bread to be baked and clothes to be mended? I've no time for your stories, cried her sister Tess. I need to sew my dress and make a garden of flowers for my hair. Stories, scoffed her sister Martha. Why only children and foolish people listen to such imaginings about what might have been or could have been. But whenever Maggie went to the village to buy some seeds or to sell a bag of grain, there was always someone who'd call out, Hey Maggie, come sit with us and tell us a story. And so, with the day's work done, Maggie would sit under the sprawling willow tree while people gathered around her to listen to her stories. She told them of a land where time stood still, where lions lay down with lambs, where trees danced and rivers sang. She told them of children who saw their dreams in the sparkle of stars and heard secrets in the whisper of the winds. She told them of girls who could walk on water and soar through the air on eagles' wings. As her listeners lost themselves in the tales she spun, Maggie saw a light in their faces, a golden glow of wonder glimmering in the dim twilight. Later, as they walked home together, Maggie's father stroked her hair and murmured, Aye, Maggie, you have the gift of words. Guard it well, my child, for one day it will set you free. Now it so happened that when Maggie had seen sixteen summers come and go, word came to the village that the young king of their land was searching for a wife. In order to find someone who would be able to help him rule the kingdom wisely, the king had prepared a task. Whoever can do this task, said the king, shall prove herself worthy to be queen, and if she will have me, then I will ask her to be my bride. On the first day of summer, the village maidens gathered excitedly by the bridge at the edge of the village to learn what the king's task would be. The road before me leads to my castle, said the king. It is a long and winding road and is more than one day's walk from here. The task is this. I want someone to make that road shorter for me. A gasp rose from the crowd. But that's impossible! cried Maggie's mother. Who ever heard of such a thing? What's the use in making a road shorter? Will Tess. Doesn't he care whether his wife has beauty or charm? The man must be mad, cried Martha. Who'd want to marry such a madman, even if he is the king? Then Maggie's mother and her sisters flounced off home, disgusted with the king and his ridiculous task. One by one, The other girls in the village left too, for none of them knew how to do what the king had asked. Soon, only Maggie and her father remained. Can it be that you know how to make the road shorter? asked the king. Maggie saw the sadness in his eyes. Yes, she said, I think I can. Taking the king's hand in hers, Maggie began the long walk toward the castle. As they walked, 
Maggie told the king a story, the greatest story she had ever told. The sun rose high above the treetops, and still Maggie talked, and still the king listened. Lost in her tale, he laughed and he frowned, he wept and he cried aloud with joy. The afternoon shadows lengthened, and still Maggie talked, and still the king listened. Dusk fell, and a nightingale began to sing. The world smelled of tree shadows and wet heather as Maggie wove her web of words and the king listened. The moon shone and the stars sparkled and the miles passed by as they walked together hand in hand. When the cock crowed and the dewdrops glistened in the early morning sunshine, they came at last to the king's castle. And Maggie's tale ended in the golden light of dawn. The king fell to his knees and cried out with joy. Thank you, my sweet and noble lady. Indeed, you have made my road shorter, and you have made my heart sing and my spirit soar. Tell me now that you will be my bride and queen forevermore. And so it was that Maggie and the king were married amidst great rejoicing. From that day onward, they sent a storyteller to every town and village in their kingdom so that at night, as people sat around their fires, they could listen to the tales of old. And so they too learned how to hope and dream and love. And though there were stories aplenty, there was none that was loved so well or told so often as that of Maggie the farmer's daughter, who made a long road short and a king's heart sing. I hope you enjoyed all of our stories for this month. And if you subscribe to our Patreon page, you can enjoy even more perks and resources. Here's to stories aplenty that fill our hearts with grace and goodness, hope and light, so that we remember, as my favourite poet says, All shall be well, all shall be well, and all manner of things shall be well. Be well, my friends, be well, and join me next time for Journey with Story. Music and post-production was by Colette Jonas.